Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of One Step Beyond. This is a podcast about transformation through leadership. On our show, we have conversations with people who are creating change in business, in their community, and in their lives by choosing to lead. This is about daring to overcome barriers, push past limitations, and reshape our present and our future. This summer, I took a month off. It's the first time in years that I've taken like a real deal actual vacation, let alone taking a month off. And it was incredible. There was like some actual vacation there. And then, you know, my family moved into a new house. But having that amount of time off was such a privilege. And I know not everyone's able to do it. And I was thinking there, like, how do I want to live like the next two months of my life, the next two years of my life, the next five years of my life? And something I I really thought about was like, how do I keep that sense of balance? You know, Cadence has been building over the past few years. We're actually about to hit our fifth year anniversary. And it's just been a grind. I've been working my butt off. And it's been super cool. But I realized I lost some of that just like being in life and just enjoying life as it is. Always feeling there was some next thing I needed to get to. Taking that month off was cool because there was really nowhere I had to be. Nothing that needed to happen. I know that can't be every day. But just that sense of like stillness is something I'm really focusing on right now. And it's been cool. It was a really, really good reset. I hope anyone listening here, it's like, listen, I know this pandemic has caused all of us to reevaluate our lives. For a lot of people, we had to like hustle even harder to get to make ends meet. If there's one thing I'd ask you to take away is how do I make the next two weeks, next two months, next two years as well paced as they could be? So along those lines, today we're talking to Johnny Crowder. As a suicide abuse survivor, Johnny Crowder spent his formative years searching for resources to help him cope with his mental health conditions, ranging from OCD and bipolar disorder to schizophrenia. His firsthand experience with mental illness, university-level education in psychology, and contagious positivity combined to fashion a spirit of advocacy and compassion unlike any other. Through both music and motivational speaking, Crowder's testimony has impacted millions of lives across the globe by demystifying taboo psychological principles and sensitive topics with levity and wit. After nearly a decade of clinical treatment, volunteer peer counseling, and public advocacy, Crowder now relies on the strategies he shares through Cope Notes to live a happier, healthier life than ever before. So before we get started, I want to thank our sponsors, SE Electronics. And if you haven't yet, then please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. So let's get to the episode. I'm your host, Aram Arslanian, and this is One Step Beyond. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to the show. So like I mentioned in the intro, today we have a really interesting guest, uh, Johnny Crowder from Cope Notes. Johnny, welcome to the show. I am happy to be here. I'm also jealous of your Oasis shirt. My guitarist is like shamelessly fanboying over Oasis the last couple of years. And it's crazy how they've been tied to the one song, but mm. they're kind of legendary across the board. Well, I think a lot of things are in play right now because they seem to have like this resurgence. And part of it is like, you know, everyone's like, Ah, oh, you know, we want the reunion, the reunion, because reunions are so big. I mean, part of it is just they're such an incredible band. There's that renewed interest. I think like the Gallagher's are so brutal on the internet, especially like Liam is just like 
man, he's just brutal. And, and everyone loves it. But I'll tell you the thing that I think was hilarious is when like Foo Fighters were like, ah, oh, let's, let's get Oasis. Like, you know, Dave Grohl, who the hell do you think you are? You're going to get the Oasis back together. And they just like blew up his spot. They like made fun of him till they shot him down. And I think that kind of like endeared people to Oasis. Like not that they weren't, but it renewed interest of them just kind of like digging at Dave Grohl. I don't got it. I don't have anything bad to say about Dave Grohl, but he's kind of, you know, he's that guy that's in like every documentary about music. And I think people are just kind of like enough of this guy already. So I, I kind of feel like they're shot at Dave Grohl, like took him up. Dude, the, the one thing that I heard from Dave Grohl that I always appreciated was people asked, um, this must've been a decade ago or more, but they were like, how do you manage to, you know, stay humble when you were in Nirvana, which is like one of the most iconic bands of all time. And then you wind up being in the Foo Fighters, which becomes huge. And he said, something that always helps me stay grounded is when I go home, my daughter's like, daddy, clean my diaper. Or like, yeah. daddy, I need help with pouring some juice. And he's like, I'm not a rock star in my house. And it helps keep me sane. And I've always, I don't know him or anything, but that's always stuck with me. Like, you need people in your life who will treat you like a normal person, regardless of what your career looks like, you know? Yeah. And I think for like mega stars like that, that's got to be tough because they're also so, so surrounded by people who make things happen for them. Like, you know, nannies or like, you know, assistants or all these things that to be able to get that just real life experience that grounds you, it's got to be tough. Um, Dave Grohl, by all accounts, seems like a cool guy. I I don't know. I haven't met him. Don't anticipate I'm going to meet him. But, you know, Dave Grohl, if you happen to hear this, uh, you know, good for you. Anyways, all right, let's talk about you, man. Let's talk about Cope Notes. So real interesting model. So for people who don't know, tell us about Cope Notes. Tell, tell us about what it is and how it started. So short version, I always tell people the long version is mm -hmm. I gave a TED Talk and it's 18 yeah. minutes, no detail spared. That's where you want to go for the like lowdown. Mm -hmm. But the short version is... I grew up with a number of mental illnesses mm -hmm. in and out of treatment, trying to figure out what was going to work for me, basically really frustrated with a lot of things that I used. So I wanted to create something that could fill gaps. I would go to therapy and then maybe I'd make progress. Maybe I wouldn't. And then for six days and 23 hours, I would backslide. Mm -hmm. So I needed something a little more, instead of one big thing once a week, I needed like a few little things per day sprinkled throughout my week so that I could stay on top of my mental health. So mm -hmm. I created Cope Notes to be that. And mm -hmm. essentially what we do is we provide daily mental health support via text message. And each mm -hmm. text combines peer support and positive psychology to train the brain to interrupt negative thought patterns and replace them with healthier ones. Okay. So when I think of this from a, a therapeutic model and again, for anyone listening, you know, I feel like I always, I, I don't like bringing this up all the time, but I bring it up just for the, the conversation. So for anyone listening, of course, my background is as a therapist. I worked in addiction and mental health for a decade. So with that said, if I think about a therapeutic model of like outpatient care where people are like out in the community living, they see a therapist maybe once a week, maybe once every two weeks, maybe once a month, but on the rest of that time, they don't have a support network. And that's where a lot of things traditionally like AA would come in or like mental health groups, 12-step uh, groups or recovery groups. And those things have a lot of success, but also a lot of critique about how maybe they weren't as successful or useful or even how like the user base of those is changing. Because we're in this world now where people, 
uh, have so much access to things like, you know, the internet, cell phones, like all of that kind of stuff. So what gave you the actual idea to do it this way? Well, it was, it was a combination of some of the stuff that you mentioned, but also feeling like relying on my own initiative didn't always work. Like I would say, you know, somebody would get me a book. I actually had a girlfriend um, at the time who was trying to be very sweet. And she bought me a book that was supposed to help me with uh, my OCD. Mm-hmm. And I didn't touch that book because the book would, the book requires me to take initiative, make a conscious decision to open the book, read it and not let my mind drift. And same with going to groups. Like you want me to go to a group? I have to get in my car. First, I have to put on clothes, get in my car, choose to plan my day or week around going to a group. And it it was such a heavy lift that it felt like um, kind of like saying to someone with a broken ankle, like, wow, that seems really painful. Why don't you just climb to the top of Mount Everest? There's a great clinic up there that can fix your ankle. And you're like, right. well, the problem is I'm at the bottom of a mountain with a broken ankle. So ultimately what I wanted to do is make something that would take the first step for you so that mm-hmm. you wouldn't have to make the conscious decision to engage. Mm-hmm. And um, I talk about it in the TED talk, but I it started very in a very rudimentary way. I just wrote out a short couple of sentences that I thought would be helpful to hear, like I would like to hear them. Mm-hmm. And then I sent the same text copied and pasted to like 30 people in my phone book just Mm -hmm. to see what would happen and all of these people started texting back saying like how did you know i needed to hear that and wow that was so relevant and i thought i didn't know that it was relevant i don't know what's going on in your life but it showed me that the brain's ability to interpret is much more powerful than my ability to predict you know Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. okay so it starts with just hey i I want to hear these things. I'm going to send them to 30 people. Really positive response to it. Then what happens? Well, then I had no idea what I was doing, right? Because my just so people understand my background. So I went to school for psychology, not for business. Mm-hmm. So I like was not planning on creating a business ever really in my life. I, I've worked in creative almost my entire life. And so... I thought, well, shoot, I have something cool that I want to make. So what I did is maybe like the messiest beta version of any product ever. So what Mm -hmm. I did was I Googled um, SMS marketing software. And I Googled all this stuff about like uh, engagement rate for text messages versus making an app because making an app would have been expensive and I was scared. Um, And then I Googled SMS marketing software and I thought, shoot, I'll manually send these messages out and I'll use a Google voice number to manually copy and paste messages to people. And it was, it was, I actually met a, um, an enterprise partner of ours now, not too long ago for lunch. And they said, I got to be honest, when I first tried Cope Notes, it was so bad. (laughs) And I'm like, I bet you're right. Cause I was, I was like chicken with my head cut off at that point. Totally, man. So what year was all this? Did all this start? So I started working on a beta version of Cope Notes called Not a Therapist. Mm -hmm. And it was all based on peer support. And that Mm -hmm. was um, 2017. And then the beta version of 
Cope Notes as we know it today was launched in February, late February, early March of 2018. So it took like nine months in the market of people telling me what they liked and didn't like for me to get to a crappy version that that enterprise partner that I mentioned used. <laughs> yeah, well, but it's also relatively short ramp up time. So if we're thinking about a company that's like a viable company now, what's interesting to me, well, there's a lot of things interesting, but the key thing that keeps standing out to me is time and time again, we see innovation coming from people who are the initial audience. Like it's someone who's just a person going about their life in whatever way and they're utilizing something. In this case, it's like a therapeutic structure. And they're saying, yeah, there's gaps here, it could be better. But there's no one within the industry creating that for all sorts of reasons. And I mean, there's a lot of like incredible social services, a lot of incredible therapists, but their jobs are doing that. Where you have someone who's a user of those services saying like, hey, this isn't working, or it could be better. And in fact, why don't I just do it? We're seeing more and more how much innovation uh, in the business world is coming from people who are just end users saying like, eh, this could be better. And they're also hijacking the system. They're not waiting for permission and being like, well, who am I to do that? I'm not a therapist. You literally called your thing, not a therapist, right? And like, I love it. I love that not asking permission, going out and doing it. And then a relatively short ramp up time. Like you started this in 2017 in its most basic form. 2000, did you say 18, it was launching as Cope Notes? Yeah, that was when it was like rebranded as like, this is a thing that you can sign up for. And I like pushed the website live and stuff. Yeah. So what was the response initially? Well, there was a, the thing that I ran before, not a therapist was, mm -hmm. you got to keep in mind, telehealth wasn't as mm, embraced as it is today. So like mm -hmm. 2017, people were like on the therapy, on the phone. And I was, I had to one of my hurdles was saying like, this isn't therapy. This is like a peer support and maintenance and prevention resource. So that was a hurdle for me. The initial response from people was, oh, but there's no appointments. There's no, you don't have to create a login or there's no software updates or it's not an app that you download. And it was a huge learning curve because I had to, there were only a few like reigning telemental health champs at the time. And because what we were doing didn't fit exactly in with what they were doing, I realized pretty early on that like communicating our differentiating like competitive advantages was going to be a challenge because people kept thinking like, how come a therapist isn't texting me back in real time? You know, yeah. there was like that kind of misconception that I had to fight. It was positive. Like the response was positive, but it was very slow traffic. And there was a lot of like customer service back and forth explaining to people like they would say, oh, it must be broken because a trained crisis counselor didn't call me. And I'm like, that's literally not what we do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I imagine also that's like the figuring it out phase. Like how do we like position ourselves? How do we market our ideas? When I was still working in a therapeutic practice, I mean, gosh, that's like maybe it's over a decade ago. That's when the idea of remote uh, therapy was not, it wasn't first introduced. I mean, it's been something that's going on for a long time, but the idea of doing things over the phone, or over the internet back then. So let's say like 11 or 12 years ago was like really just starting to emerge. And a lot of it had to do with uh, a therapist could volunteer to do, um, distance therapy with people who live in like Northern BC, uh, to help marginalized communities get access. And it, people wouldn't touch it with a 10 foot pole. No way. Like there's oh, like, yeah. no, you, you can't do it. Whereas now there's therapists who work, let's say in BC, who are 
doing therapeutic practice with people who live in New York City. And it things have changed so much. What do you think has led to that change? So if you're saying in 2007 or 17, you started this thing, now it's 2021 and you've got a viable business that's that's making big change. What's What's happened in that time? Well, one thing that I wanna actually go back and mention is you were like, oh, it's so good you didn't wait for permission and stuff. Mm-hmm. I don't want to come off like I'm some like DIY maven, like because I I had to be not because I wanted to be. So Mm. don't get it twisted. I went to every single person working in mental health asking for help Mm -hmm. and pretty much everybody said no. So I was like, shoot, it's kind of like a band where you go shop to all these labels and managers and agents and everyone's like, you guys suck. And you're like, well, okay, then I'm just going to have to do it myself. So I wanted to clarify, like I purposely sought out help, but like you said, if it's pre the way telehealth is now, even four years ago, a lot of people were kind of had that hesitance that you mentioned. They're like, well, I don't really know if that's going to be legit. And I think one thing that's changed a lot, obviously the COVID thing has had a big influence on people's acceptance of doing anything digitally. But also I'll say there's, there's been a slow yet gradual understanding that we haven't been meeting the rising demand for mental health care. Like, mm-hmm. cause keep in mind 2015, do you know how many folks were like puffing up saying, well, we actually have a good enough system and we're helping everybody and we don't have any problems. Mm-hmm. And now come 2021, I think there's a lot more awareness around realizing like there are gaps. Mm-hmm. We need to address them. Yeah, and that that puffing up of the chest, it's like I get it. Like, you know, when you're when you're so dedicated to being in the space of helping people, you want to do the right thing. And there can be this sense of like we are not doing this, but then when there's out we're not doing a good enough job, but then when there's outside voices or even inside voices saying, "Hey, we're not doing a good enough job." I can see people being like, and I can understand, and I've probably been that way myself where you're like we're doing the best job that could possibly be done until you're shown that, that you're not. And that's why I think this is such a, um, such a compelling story. And, and also, I, I like that. Um, thank you for giving us that clarification that you actually went to people. And I like how you talked about it as a band perspective because I actually want to circle back to the whole kind of like band DIY thing that like most bands would be like, please put out our record, major label. And like the, you know, if the major label is like, that's awesome, you'd be like, great. People usually are DIY because everything else has failed up to that point. You know, like you had to do it yourself because there was no other option. So that's that's the story here. Dude, every entrepreneur that I meet, I'm like, I'm always curious. I'm like, what's your story? What's your background? And most people have, you know, my version of the story is unique, but most people say like, you know, I tried to work here and then I got laid off and then I tried to apply here and then they didn't have a place for me. And it's like failure after rejection, after door slammed in their face. And you get to a point where you're like, well, screw it. I just have to make my own job. I have to hire myself. Cause I can't like, for me, having tattoos was really getting in the way of my career. Mm-hmm. Like I would, I was being turned down from a lot of opportunities because of the way that I looked. And I was like, well, shoot, what am I supposed to do? The the places that would allow me to tour for half the year didn't want me to have tattoos. And the places that were cool with me having tattoos didn't want me gone half the year working remotely. So mm-hmm. I kind of did get to a point where 
I wish I could say like, I woke up and I was like, I'm going to do this myself. Screw everybody. But it was really only after a hundred rejected job applications that I decided to really pursue it, you know? Yeah, man. And that's where so much of uh, great business leaders, uh, innovative businesses, like actual innovation of any industry comes from. It's from total rejection, people not having the vision or people having the vision and not willing to take the leap, all of the, all those things. In a lot of ways, it's a classic story. And in a lot of ways, it's a unique story to you. Let's talk about when it turned the corner, though, from kind of being this, you launched it and there's a lot of like user confusion. When did everything click and people got it and you were able to meet the demand? Um, <laughs> none of those things happened at the same time. <laughs> So I think when I when I realized that this wasn't going to be like just a volunteer project, mm -hmm. because I had been volunteering in the mental health space since like 2011. Mm -hmm. So in my mind, like not a therapist was a volunteer project. I was working full time and working on not a therapist. So I was like a million hours a week unpaid. Um, and then I was trying to recruit volunteers, which it's hard to find people to work for free. Um, and then when I started Cope Notes, I still was like, this is a volunteer project. I do need to charge because now I'm doing something that actually costs, like there's SMS hard cost. Like I need somebody to pay for that. And I was still treating it like a volunteer project until this was like five months in. I actually met, we were touring at the time and I met, um, you know, a few people who signed up on their own for individual subscriptions. And I was like, okay, well that's that person's spending 10 bucks this month. And that helps cover some of our cost. I need a lot more people to do that in order to pay for this. And then there was one tour where I met three different people within the span of a week, um, that all requested an enterprise level subscription. So one was like an addiction treatment facility that was like, hey, can you support like 600 people? And I was like, well, shoot, you know, I don't know how to say this, but I'm sending all these messages myself. <laughs> like I'm pasting, you know, I'm I'm just repurposing marketing software, basically. Like I don't really have software. Mm -hmm. And um, and then shortly after that, I had a request for um, a foster care client in Iowa who's actually still a client to this day who said, mm -hmm. can you support a couple thousand kids. And I was like, well, that, I mean, I just said no to a 600 person guy. So there's no way I could do anything for you guys yet. And then I had a request. This was all in one week. I had a request from a woman who worked with the school district of Dallas. Mm -hmm. And she said, can you support 156,000 students? And I said, ma'am, like I have a full-time job doing creative and this is a volunteer project for me. And even if I could do it, it would wind up costing the school district like millions and millions of dollars in order to to afford that just based on like the price per subscription per month and she said i know i just wanted to see if you would be able to meet that demand i was like are you kidding me that's a real question and it made me realize that the demand wasn't just a few people that i met here and there the demand might be on like an institutional level like on a community-wide level mm -hmm. and she said we the school district can't work with vendors who don't have a full-time ceo mm -hmm. and i was like i'm gonna do the wildest thing i've ever done and quit my job to be a full-time ceo to pursue this so spoiler alert we don't have a contract with dallas isd yet but it woke me up to realizing how large the need could be. Mm -hmm. uh, how many employees do you have now? 
Not a lot. Like a lot of the best advice that I've gotten in the startup phase is keep people contract until you need W2. So especially at startups, you'll have, um, you know, you might have 20 hours a week or 30 hours a week for some people. You rarely have 40 hours worth of work per week for someone on a multi-year basis until you know what the heck you're doing. So I've been very careful not to waste people's time. So right now we have, um, we have literally three full-time in-house employees on payroll and then we have a majority of the people helping us, probably seven to 15 or so people who are project basis. So they'll come in and work on a sprint with us and then they'll take some time off. And um, as we grow, we're bringing, we're pulling from that contract pool in-house. Yeah, so you have roughly around 20 people who are active within the business at any given time, would you say? Uh, at any given time, it's based on the, it's based on the sprints that we're doing because sometimes mm -hmm. they overlap. Like let's say a project takes four people and then you're doing another project that takes four people. All of a sudden you have eight contractors working. Yeah, um, yeah. And then there are some times where we have no sprints where it's just our in-house people. It's kind of hard to explain. No, no, it makes, it makes perfect sense. The reason I'm asking you about this is like, I want to empower people to, to understand like starting a business doesn't mean you're like, I've got a business and now I'm the CEO and I've got this office and I've got all these people. And I, this is my ancient business person voice. I don't know why I'm using it, but, it, but the idea being that like you can create something super impactful and you can be the CEO of a company that literally has, including you, three employees. And that company can do, do massive revenue and beyond the massive revenue, it could be creating like a huge positive impact. It doesn't have to be this traditional idea of business where it's like, We've got all these vice presidents and this and that and that and this. The modern idea of business, and even actually I'd say even traditional idea of business, is really it could just be a few people who utilize really strong contractors at the right time in the right way. It's just about how st strategic you are about building your business. With that being said, tell us about how modern day Cope Notes works. What is the service and how does it work? So it's a it's a heck of a lot cooler than my initial idea. Um, so actually first when i was running cope notes for example there's a ton of differences and we don't have to walk through all of them but one that will illustrate the the gulf between the version that i started and the version that exists today was before i would write text messages one text per day and then i would put them in a google sheet and then go on to my sms marketing software that was literally just a web app that i went to online and paid like per text credit to use, it was ridiculous. And I would paste in the Google, the text that I wrote in my Google sheet, and then I would pick a random time myself and then schedule it to be delivered to the entire list at once. Mm -hmm. And then if people wanted to sign up, they filled out a form on our website and I would copy their information and paste it into our essay. I mean, dude, I was making so many errors every day. And so now we have a living text library that has hundreds upon hundreds of text messages that are written by peers with lived experience. They are reviewed, edited, and approved by our clinical oversight panel of mental health professionals who are making sure that they are, the texts are applicable across demographic, they're trauma-informed, they're based on proven psychological principles. Mm -hmm. And then we have a scheduler that we built 
that will randomly select a day, a user, a text, and a time, and schedule it out so no two people ever get the same text at the same time. We use artificial randomization to like choose the sequence of text for different people and to determine relevance based on their feedback. And then when people text back, we have our oversight panel making live edits to the library based on if someone says like, this didn't make sense or this wasn't relevant to me. So we have like this living, breathing machine that's sending thousands upon thousands of text messages every day. And I look at it now and it's like so nuanced and robust and automated. And I just think like, if I would have kept trying to do it the way that I was doing it, um, I would have a lot, I would have 20,000 angry people. Yeah, <laughs> totally, totally. So do you have any sense of since the service started to where it is now, to the modern iteration of it, how many people you've been able to interact with and, and provide this kind of positive support for? It's just shy of 20,000. So we have uh, we count three things on our website publicly and it's to hold ourselves accountable um, to our impact. So we measure text exchanged, countries reached and lives impacted. And lives mm -hmm. impacted means the total number of people who have used Coke notes at some point. Mm -hmm. And I think right now we're in the mid 19,000s. So mm -hmm. hopefully by the time this publishes, we'll be right around 20 or beyond. That's awesome, man. So has there been any pushback or any kind of gatekeeping from the mental health professional world? Yeah, for sure. I actually had, uh, it's kind of sad. I've had friends who are like career therapists who have said, like, you're trying to take therapists jobs by putting out a tool like this. And, and these are people that I've known interpersonally for a long time, like through church or through music and people I had healthy relationships with and they're like, I don't want to support you. It's like a, they took our jobs kind of moment. And I was, I've always tried to explain to people like Coke notes is a supplemental resource. We focus on prevention and intervention. If you are in treatment, Coke notes is great. Like a great daily resource for you to supplement that. If you're not in treatment, it's a great way to normalize help seeking behaviors and get you to reduce some of that self-stigma and engage with those existing supports. Mm -hmm. And it's been tough because I don't view mental health as like this competitive business battlefield where people are duking it out for market share. I like coming from the patient side of things, I need providers to coordinate with each other, mm -hmm. you know, for the sake of people like me. It's interesting you say that because you put a dollar sign behind anything and not even a dollar sign. You put prestige, positional power, influence, any of those things, any of that stuff behind anything, it becomes a competition. And I'm not against competition. I'm a super competitive person. I typically am competitive with myself. Like I, I always like to beat my last things that I did and push myself, but I'm also competitive. Like, you know, there's there's companies that would be competitors of cadence. I want to like, you know, I want to push ourselves further. I want to become a better service. I think competition by uh, in and of itself is not a negative thing. When it's competition that causes harm to people, that's where I get uh, an issue. So for example, trying to shut something down or not support something like cope notes to me seems like a harmful activity. And from a therapeutic perspective, you've got that do no harm mentality. Very specifically, what I like about cope notes is, you know, I have personally and professionally known a lot of people 
were going to therapy or going to a peer support group is actually a barrier. The getting up and leaving your house or doing these things or finding the time. Let's say someone who's working full time is a single parent, so they also have a kid. Like going and actually going to therapy or going to a peer support group, it's just, it's a barrier. And something like Cope Notes and then also kind of the rise of online counseling or phone counseling, that's creating accessibility for uh, um, parts of our community that have been marginalized. So I, I only see it as a benefit. Dude, we've been really big on health equity since day one. Like mm-hmm. the re- one of the reasons why we chose uh, text over an app, not only is engagement like literally 50% higher than iOS app notifications, like mm-hmm. text messages completely womp all mm-hmm. app notifications. But beyond that, the accessibility component is something I didn't even consider until I started looking into some of the metrics around SMS in general and like modern digital communication. Cause everyone likes to think that other people have a similar setup. Mm-hmm. Like I have an iPhone. I, when I meet someone with an Android, I'm like, huh, what? But I have an iPhone. It like does not compute. Mm-hmm. And as a result, we forget that two and a half billion people one third of the world's population rely on non-smart devices on flip phones and track phones and pay-as-you-go phones that cannot download apps Mm -hmm. and then there are people like my biological dad who is 70 years old and my brother bought him an iphone and he doesn't know how to use it so all he's doing is sending and receiving text messages and phone calls that's it so even in America, 11% of the U.S. population rely on a cellular device that can't access smartphone-dependent apps. So like mm-hmm. from day one, we've been like, this is an accessibility issue. We're, what digital health has been saying to Americans is if you don't have the newest iPhone, then you can get in line and wait with everybody else. But all the people who spent $1,300 can download this nifty app and then never use it. <laughs> it's like yeah. so unfair. One, well, could I add something to that? Go for it. So um, what traditional therapeutic practice has been saying to people who can't do things in person is, well, if you really want it, if you really want to get better, you'll do it. And I think both about from um, working in an in a, uh, outpatient setting and I also think about working my own experience in working with uh, peer support groups, like 12 step groups is that idea. It's like, well, if someone like, you know, like won't get up and shower and get out and do it, well, they just don't, they don't really want it. They don't really want to be cleaner. They don't really want to get better. And I don't know, there's this, there's this real old school idea of like, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and like go and do it. It's like, yeah, I don't know. Like that just works for like a lot of people, but not everybody in, realistically i want like mental health support i want addiction support i want these things to be accessible to everybody in whatever way works for them and i don't want to i'm not critiquing uh, old school therapy like in-person therapy or in-person uh peer support groups because like they've worked and they continue to work and it's a great model but what i don't like is that like really knee-jerk reaction well they just don't want it bad enough because i disagree with that wholeheartedly dude i'm really glad you brought that up because i spent an incredibly long time in treatment. And Mm. I had people 
saying like I've had friends say like, well, it wouldn't take so long if you're actually trying or applying mm -hmm. yourself or if you actually, we, like you said, if you actually wanted to get better. And it was excruciating for me to hear that because I was putting almost all of my available time and energy and effort into trying to get better. And I just kept hitting a wall. And a friend of mine put this in a great way. She said, if you were to give somebody a button that, it, you know, the easy button, like from Staples, um, she said, if you were to give that to someone and put it, you take it and say, if you hit this button, your whole life will be better. You won't feel depressed anymore. You won't feel um, anxious or afraid or debilitated by anything. You won't hallucinate anymore. You won't self-harm anymore. And I'll just leave it right here on your dresser. And this person is in their bed and they are too depressed to get out of bed. Or like in my case, I grew up with schizophrenia. So I would hallucinate, I had a lot of auditory and visual hallucinations. So if you tell me the button is there and I'm hallucinating guards mm -hmm. in front of it. And then you tell me that it's because I don't want to get better that I'm not pressing the button. Like it's completely discounting the nature of the struggle that the person is experiencing and it feels so cruel and dismissive. So I'm glad you brought it up because it, I don't often bring it up because the reaction to us talking about this kind of thing is people saying, well, you're just making excuses for people who aren't applying themselves. And it's like, brother, if you've actually felt that kind of pain, you would get it, you know? Yeah. It, it's an interesting thing, especially now in this age where, like every company in the world is like, we value mental health and da, da, da. It's like, I, I try not to be cynical about this. And, and the cynical side of me does come up where it's like every company now is talking about being inclusive, inclusive and diverse. And they all are celebrating pride and they're all talking about mental health. It's like, man, how much of this is just garbage marketing? Like, no, but like you don't really care. But it's not that they don't care because I don't want to say that's true because there are people within those companies that care and and the marketing point is a valid thing. They are marketing themselves for sure. But also I'd say the business world and our society in general has changed along those way that ways for the most part of people wanting to be more inclusive and wanting to be more diverse and, and wanting to embrace those sides. But the key here is not knowing how. The talking the talk is one thing. And I think that that talk is mostly genuine. It's the learning how to walk the walk. And that's why I think something like Cope Notes is like a good example of Okay, people don't know how to walk the walk. They want to walk the walk. They don't know how to do it. That's where things like, if you want it bad enough, you'll go to a meeting, you'll go to a therapist. No, you don't know. So here's someone who's going to create, who's going to innovate. And then you're going to help people walk the walk. I view something like Cope Notes as basically people not knowing how to take the next step. And then it takes someone who's an affected population to say, okay, you guys can't figure it out. I'm going to figure it out for you. And I'm going to figure it out for us. So that's why I think like what you're doing is, is so powerful. Can I make a music analogy? I, I need you to now. I'm so curious. <laughs> All right. So when I was younger, I was super active in punk and hardcore and put out tons of records and did all this stuff. And then I didn't for a long, long time. And there are professional reasons for it because I got really busy with work and really focusing on like my daughter and focusing on building up my company and all that. And there were personal reasons where I was going through an extremely like 
difficult time, like really personally difficult time. Last year, I put out the first record that I put out in many, many, many years. And I didn't know what I was doing. It wasn't like, no, but it wasn't the time of when I could put out a record on, on a record label. And also, I'm not like going to go out and tour for like 10 months out of the year, all that. And I was talking to my friend Rich Rossi and shout out to Rich and shout out to Death Wish over at Death Wish. And I was like, dude, I, how do I put out a record now? Like, what do I do? And he walked me through it. But the core of what he just kept saying was, your goal is to always think, how do I make this as easy as possible for people to get this music? And everyone listens to music in different ways. Some people listen on Spotify. Some people listen on iTunes. Some people still buy CDs. Some people buy vinyl. Some people... Um, listen on YouTube. And basically he was like, whatever is the way that people listen to music, that's where you want your music to be. Doesn't mean they're gonna listen to it, but it needs to be there. And it, it was so much easier to put out a record now than it ever was. Cause it's basically just like, think of every single way that people listen to music and just make sure your record is there. And yeah. it was a cool way of doing it. And it makes me think of Cope Notes because it's basically like, how do people need help? Just think of every single way people need help and then innovate to make sure that's possible. I like that a lot, especially because, I mean, even in the last 10 years, look at how much phones have been demonized. Like one of the one of the first things that I hear from people who are like, because you asked if I ever get kind of kickback and hesitance from people around what I'm doing. That's a common one is like, so you want people to use their phones, their phones are why they're depressed. And I always think to myself, that's not true. Like if you're in a kitchen you can make the healthiest meal or the unhealthiest meal, depending on what you have in your kitchen, right? If you don't have fresh produce, you might not make something that's that healthy. So all I'm doing is making sure that people's kitchens have fresh produce yeah. in it. That's it. Like, don't say that the kitchen is bad. And cell phones have been very problematic, but not the phone itself. It's the way that we use it, which is why there are a lot of like apps success metrics that I shy away from when we're looking at how people engage with Cope Notes. Um, they might, an app might say, oh, people are only spending so-and-so minutes on this app per day. And I think I want people to spend as little time as possible engaging with their phone anyway. Like I don't need people to spend 30 minutes in a Cope Notes text thread. There are some days when you have your hands full and you see a text message from Cope Notes, you read it, it takes you nine seconds to read the message. Mm -hmm. But then you chew on it mm -hmm. and you think about it and you talk about it with someone else and then it pops into your head on your drive home that day. And then three weeks later, someone mentioned something related to it. So the real work of Cope Notes doesn't take place in your phone. We're just using your phone because that's what you're holding the real magic of it takes place long after the message was delivered. Totally. So one thing that we haven't gotten into, and, and we only have a few minutes left, so I'm going to ask people to go to your TED Talk, and we're going to make sure it's all, all linked to it, because we haven't gotten too much into like what Cope Notes is today. So if someone signed up with the service, what, what, what are they engaging with? So if you can just give me a couple minutes on that so that people listening can have enough information to go back to the TED Talk. Yeah. So today, Cope Notes, it, I mean, it's like I said, it's just a much better version. So we're using daily text messages to improve your mental and emotional health. But really, the science-y stuff behind it is where you, oh, you might have read about this, actually. You know, like cognitive restructuring and neuroplasticity. 
So we, the text messages act as EMIs or ecological momentary interventions, mm -hmm. and they interrupt negative thought patterns with a catalyst for positive thought. So that over time, your brain learns to think in healthier patterns. Mm -hmm. So all we've been doing for years and years is thinking, how effective can we make this one thing? And a lot of times people will say, what, you start out doing text messages, now three and a half years later, you're still doing text messages? And I say, yes because all of our competitors, and I use that term in figurative air quotes because I'm not a huge fan of the term, but all of the other folks who are providing similar digital mental health resources, they are saying, well, we're gonna have a full suite and there's gonna be modules and video trainings. And then, and they're all about like this multi-platform, like make it all the bells and whistles. And through my research, I've found that making something sexy isn't the same as making it effective. Mm -hmm. So I we kind of chose from day one, we're not gonna branch out into any other multi-platform thing until we are the best mental health texting resource on the planet. So short of that, mm -hmm. any time that would be spent building out like a video training series or or an app that lets you chart your whatever, no. We're going to get better and better and better at the one thing that we're good at. And that's proven to be really effective because now instead of us having to build like benefits programs, mm -hmm. benefits programs contact us and say, can we plug your thing in? Cause you do your one thing well. So yeah. it might sound after three and a half years that we're still doing the same thing. And I can say that you're partially right because we are doing mental health texting, but we're doing it so much better than anyone else. Yeah, man, uh, I think that's that's the key. Like, you don't, don't try and be good at everything. Try and be good at that one thing that makes a huge difference, that thing that you're an, you're an expert at. All right, so let's turn to you. Can I ask you a couple of questions about you? Yes, please. All right, so what have you learned about yourself that you didn't know at the beginning of, uh, of your journey down this path? a lot of stuff one thing that sticks out to me is that i can perform a task if the end justifies the means so i have done a lot of things that i haven't really been super interested in in order for cope notes to succeed um like i've learned coding and i'm not great but I've had to learn stuff about coding and, and HR and legal and finance. And it's stuff that I, I used to, you know, like you grow up and you're a punk and stuff and you're like, you'll screw the man. And like, you know, I don't want to learn about all that stuff. And then you get to a point where you're like, I have to draft onboarding materials to set a fractional CFO up for success. And it becomes interesting because the work itself might not be your favorite thing to do, but if it means that Caitlin in Ohio is going to grow up with a mom because her mom used cope notes to get through some challenging period of her life, then yeah, I want to draft the best onboarding materials I've ever drafted. So I've learned that um, the, the idea that I had in my head of like a, a stiff businessman doesn't have to exist like you can be a version of a leader in an organization that wears t-shirts and says dudes and shows empathy mm -hmm. um without having to be this like cruel ruthless money-driven monster you mm -hmm. know 
Yeah, yeah, 100%. I love that. Tell us about your musical background. I grew up like everyone in our generation or most most everyone in our generation that got beat up in elementary school listened to like Slipknot and System of a Down and Linkin Park and mm-hmm. um, Corn. Like I grew up in that new metal era. So I listened to a lot of rap and then a lot of like that rap rock kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And then got really into radio rock, like Chevelle and Seether and Red, um, 10 years. And then slowly, actually not slowly, one day on MySpace, I came across Devourment, which is like a slam band. And then from that point on, I just became fascinated with like really heavy, brutal music. So I started my first band in 2009. I had no idea what I was doing, Um, but I took it real seriously. And we got signed to Nuclear Blast and E1 Mm -hmm. in 2012, I think we put out our first record through the label in 2013 that was like black and death metal Mm -hmm. so went from doing that style of music to fulfilling our contract and starting a new band um that's a lot more like the music i listened to growing up like the new metal and alternative metal like deftones type stuff Mm -hmm. so it's been really fun to go from like um listening to eminem to like touring and doing metalcore and then like black and death metal with all the animal bones and candles and everything. And then going from like signed with a beast manager and label and team to independent making the music that I want and dancing around on stage instead of being tough. Yeah. yeah, I I love it, man. I also love that you said uh, our generation or that you kind of implied that I was part of your generation where I am significantly older and all of the things that you were talking about were happening post-college for me. So thank you. I feel so, I, I whatever whatever r- regiment I'm doing to keep myself looking young is clearly You're aging working. like wine. Thank That's you. That's crazy. Thank you, thank you so much. I, I appreciate that. Okay, uh, I got three more questions for you. Yeah, buddy. All right, so first question. Let's do a, let's do a, a current top three and it, it doesn't have to be like, this is forever. It's just right now. I see some Jordan ones behind you. Mm-hmm. Current top three sneakers. Well, um, one of the most elusive pairs that I've always loved are the shattered backboard 1.0s. Mm. Favorite, those are the Jordan ones. Mm-hmm. Also the Jordan three black cement. I don't have either of these pairs. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are so iconic. I mean, they've been on my list for my whole life, basically. Mm-hmm. And then a third, I, oh, you know what? I'm going to be that guy because I really like these, even though I'm not like a, I'm not really a name brand type of person. Like with clothing and stuff, like I haven't gotten really into Supreme or Off-White or anything like that. You wear Jordan ones. That's like the most like name brandy thing out there. I know. It's only okay. the sneakers for some reason. Okay. I've never gotten okay. into okay. it with like the streetwear stuff. Okay. Okay. Um, but for some reason, the off-white Prestos from the 10 collection. Um, oh, okay. The Nike off-white Prestos where they're like a cream and black color. And then they have those obnoxious green and orange laces. I love them to death. I and they're, they're like two grand resale. So heaven knows if I'll ever be graced with a pair <laughs> well listen you know we're in the the great world of podcasting maybe someone will hook you up all right be a dream 
All right, second question. What are the three bands that you think are most related to the work that you do with Coke Notes? That's a really good question. I don't want to pick my own because that's not no. fair. I don't know that I'm going to have a really good answer. Um, well, I know one band that comes to mind is Meshuggah. Mm -hmm. And that's only because of how calm I feel when I listen to Meshuggah. Mm -hmm. It's like this weird meditative, droney, fascinating pattern weave that you can't, you almost can't be depressed or anxious or frustrated or anything, at least for me when I hear Meshuggah, because it's so involving that I can't think about what's going on in my life and listen to the music. I have to pick one. Mm -hmm. So I like Meshuggah for how engaging they are. It might not be for everybody. Um, mm -hmm. Also, there's a band called Cloud Kicker. Have you heard of them? Never. It's an instrumental band. I'm pretty sure it's just one guy. And it's very similar. There's like complicated patterns and it's instrumental really. They have like chill parts and then really interesting patterns. So probably that. And then I don't, I don't have a real good third one. Like I don't know, I don't know many bands that do mental health well. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of like, there are bands who might mention stuff about mental health, but they don't the execution might have a little more negative of an outcome than they are expecting. Cause it's not like really consciously sharing about the stuff. Mm -hmm. So I don't really have a good third band at the moment. Uh, can I tell you the three that would apply to cadence? Please. Um, youth of today. Do you like youth of today? Somehow. So I grew up straight edge mm -hmm. and never listened to youth of today. Man, I gotta tell you, listen to uh, We're Not In This Alone, but don't, like the recording's rough, but listen to the songwriting. Songwriting is like unreal, unreal songwriting. And and also for that time, the lyrics were like really, like uh, really good lyrics. Uh, uniform Choice, Minor Threat, and, or sorry, Youth of Today, Uniform Choice, and uh, Minor Threat. The, uh, without those three bands, Cadence wouldn't exist, and I don't know if I would either. Um, all right, last question, last question for you. We get all sorts of people that listen to this podcast. It, you know, it's a mix of like pure business people. So people who are in the corporate world, but there's like artists, there's athletes, there's skateboarders, there's punks, there's people from the metal scene. And it's been cool because we're getting like a pretty diverse audience, but they all come here for one reason. And really the podcast is about leadership. And all we've been talking about today is leadership and not leadership in the traditional sense where it's like you know like i'm a leader but it's just people who are out there willing to take a leap and do something that makes a difference and that's certainly you so anything that you want to say to what what could you say to people who feel they could make a difference but they haven't taken the leap yet i want to keep it real it's going to be harder than you think but more worth it than you think I love that. That's a great place to end. So listen, uh, Johnny, thank you so much for being on the show. Anything that you'd like to say as we're closing off? Mm, I'm trying to use LinkedIn more. So mm -hmm. if you guys can hold me accountable to that and add me on LinkedIn so I have a reason to engage with it more, do it. And then also um, I wanted to mention that if anyone has listened to this and thought like, well, this was cool, but mental health isn't really my thing. I'm not you know, I don't really have anything going on and I couldn't use mental, I couldn't use a mental health resource. 
I want to just push back on that and say that if you have a brain, you could benefit from any mental health resource. Mm -hmm. And I encourage you to go to our website, check it out. And if it's not for you and you have a miracle brain that, you know, there's nothing that could use polishing, then please pass it along. We have gift subscriptions for friends or family members. And and it, I think probably everyone listening knows somebody who could benefit, if not themselves directly. Awesome. And what a what a great way to end off. So thank you so much, Johnny. And everyone, please check out Cope Notes. And what's the name of your current band? Prison. Check out Prison? Oh, yeah. Uh, check out Prison. All right. Well, again, thank you so much, Johnny and Spencer. Drop the beat. That was an incredible conversation. Thank you, Johnny. You know, when it comes to mental health, demystifying is part of it. Like really having that conversation so people know like, hey, this isn't some weird thing. This is a very common thing. People all over the world in all sorts of walks of life struggle with all sorts of different kinds of mental health concerns. And sometimes they live with things for short periods of time. And sometimes they live with them for long periods of time, even their entire lives. So demystifying it is so important to be able to have those conversations and really share that experience of either being someone or loving someone who lives with a mental health concern. But the other thing is about doing something about it. It's great to know and to be informed and to demystify, but we also want to empower. And that's where I love something like Cope Notes and also how Johnny just did it. He's just like, you know what? I want there to be a better solution. I'm going to make it happen. Don't wait for permission. Don't wait for someone else to do it. If you believe in change, if you have a vision, now's the time. Here's a great example of how one person can change hundreds and thousands and millions of lives because they had the guts and the vision to do it. You're that person. Take the leap. So as we're closing off, I want to remind everyone that we're produced and edited by Spencer Priest, recorded by Patrick McKechnie, with design by Tammy Levy. Again, my name is Aram Arslanian, and this has been One Step Beyond. What?